Well, could we open our uh, copy of the Scripture to Philippians chapter 1, please? Philippians chapter 1. And we'll just read the final few verses of this chapter, starting at verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, commencing verse 27. And as you turn there, I'd like to also offer my own words of welcome and to those who are visiting with us today and trust that the Lord will bless each and every one of you underneath the preaching of God's Word. We've been going through the book of Philippians, or at least I have on Sunday morning, and this is now the 14th message on this opening uh, chapter. So Philippians chapter 1, and commencing our reading at verse 27. So let's hear the Word of the living God. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. Amen. We'll end our reading there. We'll look to the Lord for a brief word of prayer, and pray that the Lord will bless us even as we gather around His truth. So let's unite in prayer together. And you as God's child, ask the Lord to speak to your heart, give you the direction, instruction, and that the Lord will encourage you even as you walk with Him. So let's unite in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise Thee for the service thus far. And Lord, we thank you for this blessed privilege to come and to worship thee together as thy people. Lord, we thank thee that we do think about thee often on our own. We pray to thee by ourselves and read the scripture. And Lord, now we come together as thy people and we pray that thy presence will be with us. We pray for the Holy Spirit to come. And I pray, O God, for that help that I need. We pray for the fresh cleansing of the precious blood and the infilling of God the Holy Spirit, that I might be a vessel in thine hand, an instrument in the hand of the omnipotent and almighty God. We pray, O God, that thou would speak, speak to all who are assembled. Remember thy dear children. We pray, Lord, that thou would encourage them. Lord, that thou would build them up in their faith. We pray, O God, that thou would speak to those who are not yet thine, that thou, God, would even have a word in season, fix a word within their mind, within their heart, that they'll not be able to shake. May the seed of conviction be sown, that it might bring forth that fruit of conversion. So, Lord, do us good this morning, and shut us in with thyself. Take away distraction, elevate the mind, remove tiredness and weariness from the body, and we pray that thou be glorified in all things. For we ask this in Jesus' name with an eye to thine eternal praise and glory. Amen. We noted a recurring word in the opening chapter of Philippians. It is the word gospel. And we noticed how the gospel of Christ makes an impact upon the believer, not only at their conversion, but it influences and has an effect the whole way through their life. Having passed the preliminaries, Paul In verse 27, he begins to charge the believers about how they should be living in the light of the gospel. And it's in verse 27 that we have the first imperative of this letter. To this point, Paul has required nothing of his readers, nothing of his listeners. 
Everything that leads up to verse 27 has been merely a statement of fact by the apostle. It's in verse 27 that we have the first command. And there is a world of difference between an indicative and an imperative. An indicative is merely the telling, uh, telling of the facts, whereas an imperative, it lays a great responsibility at your feet and it calls for our obedience. Now, we have this approach in all our epistles of the Apostle Paul. Take Romans, for example. You don't come to an imperative until chapter 6 and the verse 11. The first five plus chapters are teaching and doctrine. And that is the necessary foundation until finally Paul in chapter 6 begins to speak with imperatives and issues commands that we are to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The same is true in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are really all indicatives, all statements of fact. They're teaching their sound doctrine and biblical theology. But it's when you come to chapter 4 and the verse number 1 that you have the first command. And Paul says there in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, he says there, "...thy therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called." And doctrine must always be followed with duty. Beliefs must always be followed with behavior. The doctrine is the basis upon which the charge is issued here in this chapter. That's what Paul is doing here in Philippians. It is because of the gospel which assures the child of God that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. It is because of the gospel that for the believer to live is Christ and to die is gain and to depart is far better that the command is given to the Philippians to speak and behave in a manner that is worthy of the gospel that they profess. And the same charge or the same commands come down through the ages to each and every one of us as God's children. And that's what we were considering a few weeks ago, Paul's charge to Christians. Really the Lord's charge through him to Christians. And we focused solely on verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And from that verse, we considered three things. Paul's charge concerning their conduct, pointing out that we are to live in a manner that is worthy of a gospel that is described as the power of God unto salvation, a gospel which takes a wretch of hell and makes him a new creature in Christ. We also thought about Paul's charge concerning their consistency. And no matter what company, we keep, we are to be consistent in our living for the Lord. And finally, we thought about Paul's charge concerning their concord. So vital is the aspect of Christian unity and harmony that's addressed time and time again in Scripture. And we looked at our standing together and our striving together. 
And this morning, I want to pick up on Paul's charge to the Christians once again. And this is really part two, and it'll bring us to the end of the chapter. So we're thinking once again a continuation of Paul's charge to the Christians, imperatives, commands that are given to us. So firstly, we're going to think about Paul's charge concerning their courage. Paul's charge concerning their courage. Look at verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Now, when Christians are consistently conducting their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, and they're standing together and striving together for the same common cause, then it is to be expected that there will be opposition and adversaries. The adversaries here that included the Jews, who with hatred dodged or dogged the footsteps of the apostle Paul and sought to overthrow his, his work. But they also included the Gentiles with their secular philosophies and their worldly ideologies that were circulating in the ancient world at that time. The Greek myths, the Greek worldview, that man-centered thinking. And that often spilled over into opposition like the scourging and the imprisonment that Paul and Silas had experienced ten years before in the city of Philippi. Now, these were the outside enemies, if you like. And there's no trouble in identifying such adversaries. And we still have the same opponents today, those that come from without. We have all the world ideologies that are pressing in upon us. And we have those who violently oppose the church of Jesus Christ. And so there's no difficulty in determining the adversaries that are coming against us from the outside. But there are also those adversaries that we might say are within. Those who continually seek to creep inside the church and destroy it from within. And Paul highlights these adversaries to the Philippian believers in chapter 3 and verse 2. Turn there, just over a page, chapter 3 and verse 2. And Paul says to them there, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, or we could read it, circumcision. Now all three of those refer, those terms, they refer to the same group. It's really what is called a parallelism, where they're just phrases stacked upon one another, to, as it were, to expand and give a, a fuller meaning and understanding of who they are to be aware of, their internal adversaries. Now, dogs refer to those who were unclean amongst them. You see, in that day, and at that time, dogs, they ran wild in the street. They were often rabid, and they were fierce, and they scavenged amongst the rubbish for food. They were known as those animals who returned to their own vomit. And they were the spreaders of all kinds of illness and sickness. And so Paul here is speaking about the adversaries that are among the open professing church as those who were unclean. But then he goes on to refer to them as evil workers. Yes, they're unclean. But they're not just sitting there idly. They're going about doing an evil work. They're unclean in character and they're unclean in conduct. They're spreading false doctrine, false teaching about the one true saving gospel. And then we have it expanded again when Paul refers to bewaring of the 
circumcision. That's really a fancy way of saying the circumcision. You see here, and amongst the church, there were those legalists who tried to to bring the church back under the Old Testament Mosaic law and required adult men to be circumcised in order to be right with God or accepted with God. And this is a type of adversary that tries to creep into the church and in many cases has crept into the visible church of Christendom. Unclean men who know nothing of the cleansing of Christ's blood and are spreading a false doctrine. Yes, it's maybe easy to identify those who are coming without with their worldly ideologies and their fierce, physical, persecuting opposition, but there's another adversary to be aware of as well. So there's all these adversaries swirling around, and of course, they're under the direction of Satan, the old adversary, and they sought the destruction of the church fellowship and in turn every individual believer in it. And that's just to see him today. The enemy has their sights not only on the church, but on individual congregants, on you and me. And you know, many of the pagans in Philippi, they probably looked at that small band of Christians, and they thought, you know, we're winning. And from the surface, the church at Philippi, they might have thought to themselves that we're just a weak, pathetic band of people with the enemy circling around us, about to take us and wipe us off the face of this earth. But Paul writes to encourage them and to charge them concerning their courage. He tells them that they are not to be in anything or in nothing terrified by their adversaries. Here's the charge. Don't be terrified. Paul doesn't deny the existence of the enemies, the adversaries, whether from without or from within, but he tells the congregation here, you know, don't be terrified. The word translated terrified is only found here in the New Testament. And it's, again, an illustrative word. It, It suggests the behavior of a horse. When it becomes startled and it's scared and it it maybe rears up and it runs away, it's really an expression and nothing terrified. It's an expression of panic and dismay. As this one says, you know, it's vain to resist. The enemy's too strong for us to stand our ground. We need to just run away. And you know, this is the impression the enemy wants to give to us. It's often the thought we have when we only judge things by our senses. You know, isn't that what the majority of the men thought when they saw Goliath? They thought, you know, there's no chance. The enemy is too big. We'd be better off just running away. But what we need to remember is that in the gospel we have a Christ who has defeated all his and our enemies. Every satanic scheme and every assault of the adversary was hurled at Jesus Christ, and yet he overcame and conquered in the fight. At the cross, he spoiled principalities and powers, and he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And we are not to be panic-stricken to such an extent that we run away that we break rank and we no longer stray for the cause of the gospel, thinking that it's a vain exercise, that all is lost. The remnant is so small. 
And that's what the devil would have us think. That there's no hope for us. And yet, when we're in Christ, we are more than conquerors. We cannot be defeated. Therefore, we are not to be terrified. The gospel is that which increases our courage through life. And that's what I said. The gospel has an impact. Not just there at the moment of our conversion, bringing us to faith in Jesus Christ, but throughout our lives. It is the gospel that increases our courage. One man, he made the comment If you would increase your courage, you must increase your love, because perfect love casteth out fear. And you know, that really lifts the whole matter of courage to face the enemy out of the realm of sheer determinism. And how often the Christian stumbles by thinking that their courage to face the enemy is determined by the strength of their own will. And that does not mean that the Christian isn't to have a strong resolve. But it does mean that when we are persuaded of Christ's love, the way that Paul was persuaded, there as we read there in Romans chapter 8, persuaded that nothing can separate you from it, no circumstance in life, not even death itself, then you will attain the courage that this text presents before us in nothing terrified by your enemies. You see, living in this courageous, Fashion when surrounded by enemies on every side, the enemy without, the enemy within, will be, as it tells us in Philippians chapter 1, 28, an evident token or a sign that points to something. Having this courageous faith to face the enemy, to not car, to not run away, but to stand for truth, to strive for the gospel, it is an evident token, it is a sign that points to something. It's really a two-way sign. Firstly, it makes a clear and loud statement to our adversaries of the truthfulness of the gospel, and we're willing to suffer for it. And therefore, it highlights to them that while they remain in their unbelief and opposed to the gospel, they are headed to perdition, or we could read it, ruin, eternal ruin. But secondly, taking courage amidst the fight is a powerful and a a confirmation to the Christian him or herself that in their struggle they are really on the Lord's side and they will be saved at the last day. Courage flamed forth from Martin Luther when he stood against the papacy and he penned the words in his hymns, and though this world with devils filled, should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. And you know, he lived out that courage too. In a letter to one of his supporters, he said this, Where there is many devils and worms, as tiles upon the roofs of the houses, still I would enter. And so he did enter into that diet to stand for the defense of the gospel, to strive for the furtherance of the gospel. Adversaries may and will oppose us, but that does not mean that we are to live in discouragement or fear. And it may be here that there's someone who, for Christ's sake, is facing opposition. In the workplace, in school, in the family, or in the community, will take courage from the gospel 
And may God give you the grace to keep on standing and striving. So we have Paul's charge concerning their courage. But secondly, Paul's charge concerning their conferment. Conferment means the granting or bestowal of something. Let's read verse 29 together. Philippians chapter 1. For unto you is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His And Paul here goes on to explain why they are not to be startled, why they're not to be terrified by the opposition they will face. The word for is a conjunction, and he's about to give them a reason why the adversaries will come against them and give them a hard time. He tells them emphatically, for unto you. And do you hear affairs to every believer in Philippi, not just to some, but to them all, not just to the, be- the, the, the deacons and the bishops that are mentioned in verse 1, but to the rank-and-file membership of the flock? They are to expect this because it's something that is conferred upon them by God. For unto you is given on the behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now, the Greek word translated given is derived from a word that means grace or favor. And the noun is used for spiritual gifts. And the word, therefore, has the idea of bestowing graciously, giving something graciously unto the individual. God's grace is the unmerited favor, and we're told here that He gives us something freely that is without a cost to us. It's given, as it says here, on the behalf of Christ, or for Christ's sake. It's given to us for His honor, for His glory, for His kingdom, for His praise. And notice what Paul points out that is given to these believers. Two things, salvation and suffering, or believing and buffering. Now, firstly, consider the gracious gift of believing that is given to us here. It's put in a negative. For unto you is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him. And you know, this verse makes it abundantly clear that in order for anyone, anyone to believe in Christ, it must be granted by God. It must be. Natural man has a free will. Yes, that's true. But it's bent to self and to sin. Yet according to the infinite mercy of God, who has everlasting love for His people, He grants unto them the gift of saving faith. And that is taught throughout the entirety of Scripture. Faith is not something, saving faith is not something that originates within ourselves. It is something that must come down from above. It is something that is imparted, must be given by God and placed within the heart. And when God makes alive the dead soul and imparts unto them that new principle of life, He also gives them the gift of faith by which they are enabled, that sinner is enabled to do something that they have never ever done before, and that is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, call out to Him for salvation, and rest their soul entirely on Him. And so this verse makes it abundantly clear that true saving faith does not originate within the heart of man. 
Not as the Arminians would teach, or the semi-Pelagians would teach, or the Pelagians would teach. There's nothing good in man. We're totally and absolutely depraved, devoid of any spark of goodness at all. Now, just to give you some references in relation to this, turn to Acts chapter 3, and we see that this gift of faith that's bestowed, graciously bestowed unto people. Acts chapter 3 and the verse number 16. And in this portion, Peter, he is referring to the lame man that was healed. Acts chapter 3 and the verse 16. And we read there, we'll go back to verse 15, and killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses, and his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him, by Christ, hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And so we see here, read there, that faith which is by him or through him. We could read that. Christ is the mediator of the gift of faith that comes to us that enables the sinner to believe in him. So he is the mediator. This faith comes by, comes through Christ. Therefore, it's not within men themselves. We also read in Hebrews that Christ, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, that Christ is not only the mediator of that faith, but he's also the source of faith, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, in the verse Eight, we have the well-known words, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The gift of God is not only the grace of God which hath appeared unto all men, but it's also the faith to believe in that grace. In Second Peter chapter 1 and the verse 1, we read of those who have obtained like precious faith. And when we're thinking of faith, we must also consider the flip side of the coin of salvation because repentance is also a gracious gift from God. Acts chapter 11 and the verse 18. It says there, When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25, we read in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And absolutely no one can turn away from their sin and turn in faith to the living God except God give those twin choice gifts of faith and repentance. From the beginning to the end, our salvation is a gracious gift from a loving God. As, as Jonah exclaimed when he was delivered from the belly of the wheel, salvation is off the Lord. And this should humble us as God's people into the very dust of the ground. No matter if you're brought up in this church, little one, and you intellectually know the gospel, young person, let me tell you this, for you to have saving faith that was graciously bestowed to you by the God of heaven. And how our hearts should be full of adoration and praise for God, or to God, for doing that for us. And because faith is a gracious gift that is given, it teaches us that we cannot force someone to believe. We cannot do it. 
We have to be patient and wait upon our sovereign God while in prayer we call upon Him to graciously impart the gift of faith and repentance. Secondly, we see here the gracious gift of suffering. Because Paul is saying he's, he's charging them here concerning this conferment. That's something that's given to them. And he says this gracious gift of suffering. For unto you, Philippians 1 verse 28. For unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And these gifts are inseparable in their nature. No one gets the first gift of salvation without the second gift of suffering. Or the believing without the buffeting. This is a package deal and everyone likes a good bargain. Everyone likes a good deal. This is a two-for-one arrangement here. We are quick. We are often quick to attribute salvation to God's grace, but also slow to realize that suffering is also a gracious gift from God. Just as all the believers at the church at Philippi had been granted saving faith, so all the believers in Philippi had been granted the privilege of suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those believers who are standing and striving can expect the suffering that always follows. And here's the reason why we're not to run away from our adversaries that persecute us, because suffering is our birthright as a Christian. Now much suffering is self-made. The result of sinful behavior or actions. But that's not the suffering that Paul is referring to here. The words for his sake, they're very important. Paul's not referring to a headache. He's not referring to a flat tire. He's not referring to some financial pressure. He's talking about suffering because one is publicly identified with Christ. Standing under the banner of the gospel impacts the life. And that it brings suffering. And here we see the gospel impacting the life once again. Standing up for the gospel will bring suffering. If you're going to stand for the gospel, you're going to suffer for the gospel. Therefore, if an individual is not suffering for the gospel of Christ, it may be that they are not standing for the gospel. John Wesley was riding on his horse one day, and it dawned on him that for three days he had not been persecuted. He had not suffered for Christ. And so he got off his horse, and he got down on his knees. And he started to pray, and he, he says, Maybe, God, I have sinned. Maybe I have been disobedient. Just then a man was walking on the other side of the road and recognized Wesley as the gospel preacher. And he picked up a stone and he threw it at John Wesley, but it bounced in the road and it just missed his head. Wesley jumped up to his feet and he exclaimed, Thanks be to God. Everything is all right. I still have the presence of God with me. He knew that suffering was his lot as a Christian in life. God has granted unto His children the high privilege of suffering for His name's sake. And it's one of the surest signs that He looks upon you with favor. Because to suffer for Christ is a gift that is only, that is only given to those who believe on Christ. Now, I don't have time to go into why we suffer 
and how and why we are to view it as a gracious gift to the believer, the blessings and the benefits that accompany that. That's been done in a prayer meeting in the not-too-distant past. But the question of each of us this morning is, do we see our sufferings for Christ's sake, mind, not our headaches, not our flat tires, not our inconveniences in life, but do we see our sufferings for Christ's sake as a privilege? Well, because of the gospel, we should. That was the attitude that was adopted by the disciples in Acts chapter 5 in the verse 41. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Salvation is of the Lord, and so is suffering. And the Philippians need not fear that their sufferings and Paul's sufferings meant that God had abandoned them. Rather, their present difficulties was granted to them, not as a punishment, but as a tool, as a gift from God. The child, is God, the child of God is often called to suffer because nothing will convince onlookers of the reality of the power of the gospel than a believer who is graciously enduring suffering. So we have Paul's charge concerning their courage, Paul's charge concerning their conferment, and finally this morning, Paul's charge concerning their conflict. Verse 30, Having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. The Philippians were in the same basic conflict with those who opposed the gospel as Paul was. And here it's in the perfect tense once again, denoting that their conflict was their continual experience. And the Greek word for conflict is agon. And it's from that word we get our two English words, agony or agonize. And that word agon, that Greek word, it was the word that represented the place or the arena for the athletic contests of the day where the runners and the wrestlers and the boxers would suffer great blows and go to great pain in order to win the prize. And there they would push their bodies to the limit, striving for the victory. And the Philippians here, they know that they're in the same fight as Paul is. They're contending for the gospel just as Paul was, and he was encouraging them that, you know, we're on the same team. We're fighting against the same adversary. We're striving for the same gospel. Yes, he's in prison in Rome. He's in chains. They're in Philippi. They're not in chains. But nevertheless, they were fighting the same fight. They're running the same race. They were waging the same war. And you know, we're prone to forget that the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. We're sons in the family enjoying the fellowship of the gospel. We're serving together. We're sharing in the furtherance of the gospel. But we're also soldiers that are contending for the faith of the gospel. And Paul brings us up here, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me, not to draw attention to himself, but to inspire them and to motivate them. Just when we read the stories, as when we read the stories of the martyrs, 
The champions of the faith were, were stirred, were, were motivated. We might never have to face what they faced in their struggles and their persecutions and their opposition. But you know, it stirs us here knowing that we're standing on the shoulders of giants, that we're in the same team, we're contending for the same faith. It causes us to make ourselves ready that we'll stand for the cause of Christ at any cost, at any price. Ten years ago, the Philippians, they had saw the agony and the suffering that Paul went through for the gospel's sake. The accounts recorded in Acts chapter 16. Paul himself recounts his sufferings of his time at Philippi to his first letter to the, the church there at Thessalonica. And he says, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. The word contention is the same as the word conflict. And they had saw firsthand the Philippian believers, and now they hear through this letter the sufferings, the conflict that Paul, the agony that Paul faced for the gospel's sake. Can you imagine the Philippian jailer reading these words that reminded him of the, the conflict, the agony that Paul faced there in the jail at Philippi? And now that man has the same part in the same conflict. You know, suffering and persecution might not always be to the same extent and degree or to the same level for every believer, but nevertheless, it's real. The intensity might be different, but every believer struggles in some way. You might think that no one else struggles in their Christian life, that no one else has this conflict, this agonizing of soul. But that's not true. Unto every believer, suffering is given. Every believer is engaged in the same conflict. And the good news for believers is that your struggles will be over in heaven. While they may continue through life, they will be over in heaven. And the good news is while you struggle and agonize through this life, you don't have to struggle alone. Christ is with us, and there is no one who agonized more than Him. Think of Him there in the garden with strong tears, crying and tears, offering up prayer unto God. There's no one struggled more than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one agonized or fought in the battle and the conflict greater or to a higher intensity of degree than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the hymn writer penned the words, Jesus knows all about our struggles. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. And I'm sure that we are going to hear about these struggles in the coming days. But it is in the light of the gospel of Christ that Paul charges believers concerning, let's go back to verse 27, remind us, concerning their conduct, concerning their consistency, concerning their concord. This morning we thought about concerning their courage, then concerning their conferment, and finally here in verse 30, concerning their conflict. Do you see now 
how the gospel has an impact on the whole life. And not just at the moment of conversion. And maybe you're here this morning and you know nothing of the power of the gospel of Christ. And you're yet in your sin. And you're not in union, not only with Christ, but with God's people. Your life's a mess. Your conduct is not as becometh the gospel of Christ. There's no holy living. There's no consistency in your life. You have no courage. You don't have this conferment of believing and, and suffering for Christ's sake. You're not in the battle striving for the gospel. You need, you need to come to Christ. You need to repent of sin. I know those are gifts that are given by the Lord to believe and to repent. And yet the command of the gospel is to repent and believe. It is God that does the work. It is God that regenerates the heart, that imparts the principle of life and bestows the gift. And therefore the call goes out that the Spirit may work, that conviction may be wrought, and that you would exercise the faith that is given to you and rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might be delivered from the wrath that is to come. And the gospel will impact you not only now, but throughout the rest of your life. The gospel truly is the power of God in all our lives. May the Lord bless His word to our hearts for His own name's sake. And let us take heed to the charge that comes from the Lord through the Apostle Paul down through the ages to our hearts, even this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do once again rejoice in the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. What a message. What a story of redeeming grace. We thank the Lord for the impact that it's had upon many bringing them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank Thee that it still impacts our lives today. We thank Thee, Lord, for that faith that is not static, but is dynamic. We thank Thee, Lord, for a, a present tense faith that we believe on Him, even now, currently. We'll keep on believing. Oh God, I pray for Thy dear people. I pray for us all, each and every one, with this charge that's brought to us this morning, a charge concerning our conduct, consistency, concord, our courage, our conferment, and our conflict. Help us to live in the light of the gospel. And we thank thee, Lord, that it's from the same gospel that we draw the grace to obey this charge. So help us now, we beseech of thee. Help us to glorify thee. Help us to be that evident token, that sign to the ungodly roundabouts of the truthfulness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank the Lord for thy presence this morning. We pray that thou would part us with thy blessing. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be the portion of thy people both now and forevermore, I ask in the Saviour's precious name.
Amen.